glad you're joining us here at the Walla Walla University Church as we continue our four series, Practicing the Way of Jesus. Now, if you weren't able to watch last week's sermon, I'm going to implore you to go back and to look through our archives. You can find that on www.church, or you can also find it on our YouTube page. But go back and look at the first sermon that we had as we began this series. And we started in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, this apocalyptic vision of a group of people following Jesus Christ, the Lamb, wherever he went. And that was really a recapitulation of John's writing when he tells us that Jesus as a rabbi is followed by people who are disciples or who are apprentices following in the way of Jesus. And all of these people who follow in the way of Jesus are Talmudines. They are disciples. They are Methodists. They are disciples who follow and practice everything Jesus did. And we also learned that to be an apprentice of Jesus means a few things, some very practical things. It means first to be with Jesus. It means to be like Jesus. And it also means to do what Jesus did. And today we're going to launch into that first practice to be with Jesus. And we're going to do it um, entering through John 15 and this beautiful image that Jesus Christ gives of the vineyard and have been connected to the vine. Join me as we pray. Gracious Father, for the next few moments, we invite your spirit to be in our homes, in our hearts, and in our minds. We pray that we will learn to abide in you and that in abiding, we will bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the last couple of weeks, my um, Instagram and Twitter lines have been filled with uh, many of my friends telling me to watch a particular documentary. The documentary is called The Social Dilemma by Jeff Olowski. And Jeff Olowski brings together former employees of companies that we're all familiar with, such as Google, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and he brings them together to tell us about social media, that social media is more than just a honey-dipped dopamine trap, but that social media is actually addictive and creepy. And for some of you, you're thinking, duh, we know that. Have you ever been on a Facebook page and seeing people discussing particular subjects, it can be terrible. But in the social media dilemma, this documentary goes further than just telling us social media can be addictive and creepy. It actually tells us from these conscientious defectors from their former ca uh, companies that the actual perniciousness, which seems to be hardwired into social networks, are not a bug, but they are a feature. I'll say that again. The perniciousness, which seems to be hardwired in social media networks, according to these uh, defectors, are actually not bugs, but they're features. They were written in, and they are having toxic effects on our well-being. 
Social dilemma, amongst other warnings, tell us that the algorithmic recommendation engines that are the heart of our troubles, i.e. you're on social media and all of a sudden a page you've never gone on is recommended to you. A group that you've never joined is recommended to you. An article you might never have read is recommended to you. That these algorithmic engines, which are at the heart of our troubles, if left unchecked, will move us into a dystopian future, a future where news which is false, where uprisings are fomented through social media and can have real-world consequences on country and nation states. It's a dark future that they posit in the social media dilemma. And yet at the core of this entire conversation, At least I think at the core of this conversation is this idea that the currency that all of social media, all of the different companies are fighting over, the currency, the gold, is your attention. It's my attention. And when they have our attention, when our attention is captured, our behavior can be directed. When our attention is captured, our behavior can be directed. And this is an important premise for the rest of the sermon this morning, that when our attention is captured, our behavior can be directed. We all know people who seem to live in ways that suggest that perhaps they are not fully in control of their behavior. For example, there are many of you, uh, if you were to hear this Uh, this tune play in your home, you would immediately. And some of you who are listening may be thinking, Andreas, no idea what that was. It just sounded like some band music. And then there are others of you who may have not even been watching the sermon, you were just passing through the living room to go and get a satsuma in the kitchen. And you heard this noise and you thought, wait a second, it's not Monday night. I know it's not football, it's Saturday and it's the afternoon. Because as soon as you hear this tune, you immediately will rush for the nearest TV, find a packet of Doritos and get ready to watch Monday night football. And it seems in some instances that you are not in control of your behavior. There are others of us who perhaps act in ways that make no sense. We all have friends who seem to move from relationships to relationships. As soon as one ends, they don't even take a breath. They immediately jump into another relationship as if propelled by something unseen. We have parents who will watch the news and be sore after they've watched it. They're mad at the world. They're mad at the commentators. And yet there is something which seems to drive their behavior beyond their ability to stop. And all of us have to reckon with the truth that in reality, our behavior is shaped by what we pay attention to. And in a very real sense, we become what we consume. And this is why the invitation to follow the Lamb wherever he goes in the book of Revelation, this is why Jesus' invitation in the Gospels to follow him, to become disciples, 
to become Talmudians, to become apprentices is important because Jesus Christ wants us to pay attention to him. Now, in the book of John, John uses different language to speak about this attention that we have to pay to Jesus. John uses the language of abiding, that we must abide in Jesus, that we must be with Jesus by abiding in Jesus. So back to our scripture reading for today, John chapter 15, 1 to 8, John begins this incredibly beautiful picture of Jesus as the vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, on this table I have here, um, and I'll pick this up so we can, you can get a shot of this. I won't move it much further, but we have here uh, some grapes on a vine from Walla Walla, because this is Walla Walla, and we're famous for grapes in Walla Walla Valley. And it's been cut, and it's still on this vine. And interestingly, the person who gave this to me uh, went and cut it from his sister's house and said, you know what, she has lots of these grapes. In fact, she doesn't do much to them, but they grow anyway. And Jesus Christ in John is speaking about the fact that we are in him, and when we are in him, we will bear fruit. He continues in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then pay attention. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And then verse 7 and 8, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that Jesus Christ gives to us of how to be with him. And it's this idea that to be with Jesus is also to abide with Jesus. And what you will notice when you read this text is that the word abide comes up over and over again as the principal action that disciples of Jesus are called to abide. And interestingly, when you look at the way John um, forms this sentence, forms this paragraph, you will notice that abide, although it sounds like a passive uh, notion, it's actually an imperative verb. John says that we must abide in him. And when we abide, then at the end of John chapter 5, verse 8, we're given another imperative that we're then able to ask of God once we abide in God. Now, you may be wondering what this word abide means, or maybe in your Bible, you have a different word. You might have the word remain in there. But there's a way in which we can understand what John is saying when he invites us to abide in Jesus. Turn one more chapter with me, a chapter back to John chapter 14. 
where we'll find this word abide coming up again. The cognate of the word abide is used by John in chapter 14, and it will actually give us a much clearer picture of what he means when he calls us to abide. John chapter 14, 1 to 2. This is a text that if you have grown up in the church, you might be familiar with. But if not, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus promising his disciples what he will do for them as they abide and stay with him. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And we highlighted this word mansions because it's the cognate that we find in John 15 of the word abide. And that word is meno in the Greek, and it means to abide. But when John employs it in chapter 14, John is employing it and saying that the mansions are abiding places. And so as apprentices of Jesus, we are given the promise from the very mouth of Jesus that he is preparing places for us to abide in, and those abiding places are found in God and in the Son and in the Spirit. And then we're also told that not only are those abiding places found in God, in the Son, and in the Spirit, but that God, the Son, and the Spirit will also make an abiding place in us. And so the picture is a picture of mutual habitation. We abide in the Father, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit abide in us. It's a picture of deep abiding, of deep home. And for some of us, when we think about where we're truly at home, we may be here on the campus of the Walla Walla University, and we're living in Sitna, we're living in Conard, we're living in Mesky, we're living off campus, we're living with our aunt or our uncle, but we know this is not home. We'll be here for a few years, and then we'll go back to the place that is home. Some of us have lived here in the valley for years, and yet we wouldn't say this place is home. Others of you who are tuning in and watching live in places that you would not say, that is my true and deep home. For some of you, if someone asks you, where is home? Where is the place where you deeply abide? The place where when you walk in through the door, you, you, you can shed off any pretenses. There's no titles. There's no expectations. The place is warm. The conversation flows freely. Love is in the air. Where is that place of deep home and abiding? And some of you may say, you know what? It's, it's North Dakota. That's where my place of deep home is. Others of you may say, well, you know, I live here, but my place of deep abiding is uh, not a cabin in North Dakota, but it's a hacienda in Montemorales. Or for some of you, it's a beach in Negril, or it's an apartment in New York. You know where that place is, where you are deeply welcome, where you are loved, where you abide, where you are home. And when Jesus Christ gives his invitation to all of us as his apprentices, and he says, abide in me, he is calling us to mutual habitation, 
where we are with him and we are home, where he makes his home in us. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, uh, this idea of abiding in Jesus, I mean, what does that mean? Well, it means that we are to make our home in the Father and to drive our roots deep in the presence of the Father. We are to find ourselves in the presence of the Father on a regular, consistent occasion. And that doesn't mean that John is calling us to a life of monasticism. You're not supposed to find a habit or a robe and become a monk or a nun. Jesus is calling you to a life of deep abiding, even as you live your day-to-day life right now in Walla Walla, in Chicago, in Seattle, in, in, in Pendleton, wherever you may be joining us. This call to be with Jesus does not mean you extract yourself from your life, but in your life, you continue to be with Jesus. Let me give you an example. This example is really to help all of you ESTPs on the Myers-Briggs stage who are just dying for some practical information and who get all of this set up but want to know, how do I be with Jesus? And I would say the way in which you can be with Jesus And the call to be with Jesus is similar to this idea that um, physicists have called quantum superposition. What in the world is that? Well, I know a tiny, tiny fraction of what that is. It's this idea that subatomic particles can exist in two places at once, both in waveform and also as a particle. Thank you. I blanked and I knew that I was going to get from Jared, who is a music and also a physics major, that he would help me. So it's this idea of being in two places at once. To be with Jesus is to be in two places at once. To be with Jesus is to be in the cafeteria, wolfing down a bowl of cereal before your 8 a.m. class and being in the Father's presence. To be with Jesus is to be in the basement of your house that has just flooded with a sump pump, but abiding in the vine. To be with Jesus is to be in front of your bathroom mirror, contouring your face before you run out at 9 a.m. and still being enfolded in the presence of God. To be with Jesus is to be learning calculus while being settled in the Father's presence. It's to be in two places at once. It's to be in your body on earth, but it's to be open to the heavens and to the spirit of God and to allow them to make their home in you and for you to make your home in them. In fact, Ellen White, a 19th century writer, one of the um, forerunners, one of the earliest Adventists, wrote about what it looks like to be with Jesus. And she says this, it would be well to spend a thoughtful hour each day reviewing the life of Christ from the manger to Calvary. We should take it point by point and let the imagination vividly grasp each scene, especially the closing ones of his earthly life. We should take it point by point, she says, and let our imagination grasp each scene. And I think this is such a beautiful picture and one that often many of us have never heard of. 
To employ our imagination for some of us may feel like it's not a very uh, Christian or Adventist thing. We can employ our intellect, we can employ our logic, but our imagination. And yet we have Ellen White saying that to be with Jesus is also to take point by point the life of Jesus and to let our imagination vividly grasp each scene of his life, of the Bible. And so when you're reading the Bible to take time to, to um, feel the dust under your feet, it's to take time when you're reading the Bible to feel the, the wind on your face if you're by the Sea of Galilee. It's to take time to hear the cry of the child who is trying to get to Jesus, to hear the moan and the agony of someone who needs Jesus and is seeking healing. And all of that is part of being with Jesus and taking that time to be with Jesus. And then she continues by thus contemplating. So she speaks about the fact that being with Jesus is also a a habit of contemplation by contemplating his teachings and sufferings and the infinite sacrifice made by him for the redemption of the race, we may strengthen our faith, quicken our love, and become more deeply imbued with the spirit which sustained our Savior. Beautiful, beautiful picture of what it looks like to be with Jesus, to take an hour to imagine and to contemplate on the life of Jesus. Another writer Uh, this time 20th and 21st century writer Dallas Willard, speaking about what it looks like to be with Jesus, says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls, our part in thus, and then notice this sentence, this phrase, practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. It's the same thing that Ellen White was saying. She said, he goes on, in the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. And I know that to be true even this morning as I endeavor to spend some time in the presence of God, meditating on scripture. Uh, There were so many other things flying into my mind, habits that are difficult to break. But he tells us that these are not the law of gravity, but they are habits and they can be broken. And this is an important fact that I will always reiterate that to be with Jesus, to intentionally be with Jesus may sometimes feel like you take one, two, three steps forward And then you wake up one day, you're late for class, you're running late to get to work and you take two steps back. But it's a habit and not a law and it can be broken. And then he continues, a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional, another key word, intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. And you notice that what Ellen White and Dallas uh, Willard are speaking about is really just uh, building upon what John talks about when he says to abide in 
Christ. It's really the same thing as when the Apostle Paul says we ought to pray without ceasing. They are really expanding this idea of what it means to be with Jesus as his apprentices. And there's one final quote coming from the emeritus president of Lexington um, Theology, uh, Theological Seminary. He says this, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will, need, there will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our lives. And let me stop right here. We can go back one um, slide. He says that if we are going to deepen our relationship with God, if we are going to be apprentices who are with our rabbi, it will take intentional commitment. I mean, think about this. When Jesus Christ was walking on this earth and his disciples were following him, they could not have taken it for chance in a time where you couldn't call, you couldn't text, you couldn't tweet, you couldn't do anything but find the person. It would have to be an intentional action on their part to find their rabbi and to be with their rabbi. And it's the same today. There has to be an intentional commitment and some reorganization in our lives. And then he says, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. This is by William Purcell. It's an incredible picture, and it's also a radically practical one, that if as disciples of Jesus, we are to live the life of Jesus, we must be with Jesus. And to be with Jesus means we must make some intentional commitment. It may mean making some reorganization in our life. It means we have to be committed. It cannot happen by accident. And I know that living in a world where most of us with our phones in our pockets, I think a research shows that the average person um, touches his or her phone 2,617 times through the day, and this is just the average user. Then you have those power users who touch it significantly more. That in a time when we have social media and news and so much other, after our attention, if we think we will just trip into apprenticeship with Jesus, if we think we can just stumble into a deeper relationship while not making any commitments, while not reorganizing our life, then we are fooling ourselves. In fact, when I think about what it means to be committed, to be a disciple, I think that Jesus Christ called to discipleship for each of us ought not to be less than the call to professional athletes. For example, LeBron James. And this was a tweet that um, was put out by Alex Kennedy. And he said that Mav Carter, who is LeBron James' um, agent, he says, LeBron James spends $1.5 million per year on his body. He uses cryotherapy, hyperbaric chambers, Normatec leg boots, etc. He also has personal chefs, trainers, 
etc. He has a strict routine and diet. He invested in his body so he can still dominate at 33 years old. Athletes recognize that if they are to be true to the core that they have, it takes reorganization of their life and commitment. Ask a concert pianist. Are you haphazard in your ability to perform and to be committed to the life that you have if you were to practice for 10 minutes a day? No. If you're a concert pianist, you might be practicing three, four, five hours a day. And the invitation by Jesus to us is more than an invitation to be ready to play a game for 90 minutes. It's larger than an invitation to play a concert for two hours. It is an invitation into what Jesus Christ calls life and life more abundant. And it cannot happen and it will not happen unless we make intentional commitment, unless we reorganize our life so that we can be close to Jesus, so that we can be with Jesus. Now, I'm going to finish by sharing a few of the habits that we might employ, habits of the heart that we will explore over the next coming months and the coming years as we go through this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. Because maybe I didn't make this clear, this is not simply a series, but this is an invitation into a life. This is the way in which we are going to orient our community, that we can be apprentices of Jesus. And here are some of the habits of the heart that we find in the Bible that Jesus practiced. Because if we want to live the life of Jesus, we must practice the lifestyle of Jesus. And here are some of the habits of the heart Jesus had. Prayer, Bible reading, or the Torah for Jesus, Sabbath keeping, fasting, silence, solitude, worship, service, gratitude, and generosity. And all of these are simply ways in which we can be with Jesus. Not to merit his love, not to gain brownie points, not to be legalistic, but to respond to the invitation which comes from the heart of the Father who loves us. To respond to an invitation which was sealed on the cross with this incredible act of self-giving, other-centered love. And he invites us wherever you are today whether you are a mother who is struggling on your own with your children, whether you are a student who feels at sea because you are starting in a brand new place, whether you are an executive constantly thinking about the next deal, whether you are faculty preparing your lessons, this is the invitation that Jesus has for all of us in these turbulent times to practice the way of Jesus. And that way, is to be with Jesus. So let me end with this. In the week to come, I'm going to be challenging you to join me to carve out 10 minutes, just 10 minutes this week to be with Jesus. To carve out 10 minutes at the beginning of your day before everything gets crazy, before the kids are up, before the emails are flying. To carve out 10 minutes this week, every day, and be with Jesus.
Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.